You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Good morning, church family. It's good to see you. It's good to be with you today. My name is Micah. I'm the worship pastor here at the North Canton Chapel. And it's always, it's my pleasure to be able to open God's word with us today and to worship him in this way, through the teaching of his word. Uh, We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 16. And so if you want to go ahead and start finding your way there, we're going to spend the majority of our time this morning in that text. Uh, But if you've been with us for the last six weeks or so, uh, you know that last week we finished up a series entitled Holy Sexuality. And in that series, we learned what it means that we are all sexually broken, that we all are broken in our sin. And we've learned over the course of that series how to look at our sin rightly how to hold it rightly in light of who Jesus is, how to submit our lives to the authority of Scripture so that we may present our lives as holy and acceptable unto God as acts of worship to Him. That's really the heart of that series, is that Jesus, we want to be more like you, and we want every part of our lives to be submitted to who you are and to your authority. And so today, we're going to be moving into a new series called Broken and Beloved. And as we enter into this series, this is kind of why we are chasing after the life of David after looking where we've been over the last six weeks. If you've gathered with us and walked with us through the last six weeks, it can be daunting to consistently look at our hearts, to look at our lives, and to go, how do I do this? If we are all broken, what do we do? Where do we go? How do we hold these things rightly? And ultimately, we submit our lives to Christ. But as we look at David, we're going to look at a guy who is in a lot of ways just like us. A guy that in a lot of ways got it right and in a lot of ways got it wrong. And we're going to try to walk through his life and look at some key moments in his life to learn how do we do this rightly. How do we live in the tension of being both broken and beloved by God? I mean, what would it be like to sit down at dinner with David? Right? Like from the time we're little, we hear about David. We hear about this shepherd boy turned giant slayer, this warrior poet turned king. What would it be like to sit with him and to just ask him about his life? to ask him about the decisions that he made. Now, to put this in our minds, sitting down with David for dinner would kind of be like sitting down with the number one streamed artist on Spotify whose songs are sung every week in churches worldwide, a top 10 New York Times bestselling author, a decorated war veteran, the leader of the free world, and your favorite theologian rolled into one. You'd probably have a lot to talk about. This is David. I mean, how cool would it be to sit down at a table with this leader and pick his brain? I mean, what an experience to sit with this man. This peeping Tom who would look through the bathroom window at your wife while she is bathing. This man who would wait until you're gone to work 
and then use his influence to get alone with her and have his way with her. This charlatan who would give you a gift card to your favorite restaurant to send you and, wife, and your wife out on a date, hoping that you would have a good time, if you know what I mean, to cover up his infidelity. This same man who, if he was your boss, he would give you a promotion at work and send you out on a development conference, all the while knowing that he has cut the brakes in your car so that you will die in a car accident on your way home. This man, who was an absentee father and cared more about his work than he did about his family, so much so that his sons end up dividing and ripping his family and the nation apart, quite literally. This man who turns a blind eye to the incestual rape of his daughter by his own son. Do you still want to have dinner with David? Do you still want to sing his songs? Do you still want to read his poetry or study his military strategy? Is he still the man that you would want your wife and children to hang out with? The one that you'd say, hey, kids, be like David. With what you see in the life of David, would you call David a man after God's own heart? You know, many of us wouldn't be caught dead with David, if we're honest. We would look at David's rap sheet, and some of us, we would wish death on David, truthfully. But if we are not careful, we can look at the mistakes of David, the sin of David, and we can forget what we have learned over the last six weeks. That David's sin is no different than ours. And for those of us in this room who have ever looked with someone else, looked at someone else with lust, then we are an adulterer, just like David. For those of us who have held hatred in our heart towards someone else, we are murderers, just like David. For those of us who have sacrificed our families on the altars of our offices and our cell phones, we have neglected the God-given mandate that our families are our first ministries, and we have turned blind eyes of indifference, allowing sin to reign in our homes instead of making our dinner tables and living rooms altars of worship to the King of kings and Lord of lords, just like David. Church, it's my prayer for us during this series that we would gain some important lessons from the life of David. That as we look at this man who succeeded time and time again in what it means to walk in, with and follow God, and this man who also failed time and time again, that we would look at his life and gather some lessons to be learned. Not in that we are all to be like David, because David is frailed and broken as we are, but maybe we could take some cautionary tales in both the best and the worst of ways. It's my prayer as we enter into this series that the Holy Spirit would help us to see how we are broken, that he, he would give us the courage to see our sin and kill it before it kills us. It's also my prayer that during this series that the Holy Spirit would remind us of these unchanging eternal truths, that as followers of Jesus, we are adopted sons and daughters of God, and that there is nothing you or I can do to cause God to love us more or to love us less. 
You are called beloved by God in your brokenness. And so that's where we're headed. You ready? As we begin today, again, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 16, and we're going to look at David's anointing. But before we get there, we kind of need to know, how did we end up in this field with a shepherd boy being anointed king over Israel? How did we get here? And to be honest, it's a little bit messy. It's not the greatest of tales, but we also don't have time today for me to walk through chapters 1 through 15 of Samuel. In fact, I think most of you would just peace out on me. You, everyone just looked afraid when I said we were going to look at those. Uh, so I'm going to give you the highlights of the first 15 chapters, okay? And we're going to figure out how do we get to where we are at the beginning of chapter 16. So here's where we begin. We begin with God giving the people of Israel exactly what they asked for. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people of Israel have demanded a king. They've looked around at the other nations around them. They've watched Samuel, who is this high prophet of God who's supposed to lead them and guide them. And they've looked at his family and they've basically said, Samuel, we're kind of done with you. We want to be like everybody else. And so they go to Samuel and they begin to demand a king. Give us a king like all the other nations. We want to be like everybody else. Now, Samuel takes this personally because he's supposed to be the leader. And he's, quite honestly, his feelings get hurt. And so Samuel goes to God on behalf of the people. And he's like, okay, God, here's what your people want. They're, they're demanding a king. And this demand, it frustrates Samuel. And as he goes to, the God, to God with this request, he feels this rejection of men. But God sees and perceives the hearts of men. And this godly perspective, this way that God sees things in a different way than we do, is going to be a consistent theme throughout the life of David and throughout 1 Samuel. In chapter 8, verses 7 through 9, it reads, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all they say to you. For they have not rejected you, Samuel, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all their deeds that they have done from the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. See, God knows that at the heart of the people's demand for an earthly king is their rejection of Yahweh, of God, as a true king, as their true king. And they sinned against God in their rejection of him as their ultimate leader and judge. And sometimes the judgment of God comes in giving us exactly what we ask for. Sometimes the judgment of God comes in giving us exactly what we ask for. When our hearts are not seeking after God and we ask for things out of selfishness or sinful motive, sometimes God gives us those desires of our desperately wicked, deceitful hearts to help us to see that our plans and our desires don't always line up with his. So God gives the people of Israel a king in Saul. 
Saul is this tall, strong, easy on the eyes, eloquent warrior king. Like everybody loves Saul, okay? He's also not the kind of guy that you want to mess with, is sort of the, the theme that we gather throughout the scriptures. But under Saul's kingship, as God allows him to be king, things actually begin to go okay for a little bit. Saul brings renewal to the kingdom. He has some major military victories. But ultimately, Saul becomes his own worst enemy as he disobeys the commands of God two major times that we see in 1 Samuel regarding how he should worship. As the people are entering into a battle against the Philistines, Saul wants Samuel to offer sacrifices to God on behalf of the people as they go into battle. He wants God's favor with them as they go into this battle. But it takes some time for Samuel to get to Saul. And Saul gets impatient. He wants God's favor. He knows that it's supposed to happen in this way, that Samuel is supposed to come and offer the burnt offerings and the peace offerings on behalf of the people. But Saul gets impatient. And he does the right thing in the wrong way. And he offers these sacrifices himself. He doesn't wait for Samuel. And the text is, is interesting as, as it reads. It's as if Saul is just finishing having offered these sacrifices and Samuel walks up. Right? It's like if he just waited a little bit longer. And because Saul has broken the command of God regarding how the worship of God should take place, we see that the kingly line of Saul will not continue. Look in chapter 13, verses 13 and 14. It says, you have done foolishly. This is what Samuel says to Saul. You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then, this is if you had done this, Saul, if you had done what God told you to do, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. God will seek out a man after his own heart. You know, a lot of times we take that phrase and we, we look at it in terms of character. But off this specific phrasing here could be translated another way, meaning a man that God has chosen, a man that God has set aside purposefully. And this is a contrast to how Saul came to be king, where Saul was chosen by the people. God is saying, I am going to set aside someone for myself. I will do the choosing. But in his grace and mercy, God allows Saul to continue as king. He doesn't remove him from the spot right away. And we see in chapter 14, verses 47 and 48, that Saul is fairly successful. It tells us that Saul fights valiantly against his enemies on all sides, that he delivers Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. And for whatever reason, God in his mercy, we see in chapter 15, that God chooses to have Samuel anoint Saul as king. He comes to Saul, saying at the beginning of chapter 15, the Lord sent me to anoint you, king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. 
listen to the words of the Lord. And then Saul is given instructions. Instructions on how Israel is to be used as an instrument of judgment over the Amalekites for their opposition toward Israel when they were coming up out of Egypt. And Saul's instructions are very clear. Destroy everything. Everything, everyone, decimate it. Gone. God is using Israel as judgment of sin. But having not learned his lesson from the Philistine battle... Not learning the lesson that the wrong thing done with the right intention is still the wrong thing. Said another way, sin is sin no matter how much we justify it. Saul leaves the king of the Amalekites, Agag, alive. And then he saves the best livestock, right? He puts all that aside. This is after Saul has been anointed king and he's just given the simple instruction, listen to the words of the Lord. And can you hear Samuel telling this to Saul after they've had the whole interaction with the Philistines? There's almost a little bit of, hey, do you remember how this went last time? But God comes to Samuel in chapter 15 Verses 10 and 11 with some very hard words. God says, I regret the God of the universe who spoke all into existence. I regret that I have made Saul king. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Then we see in the text that Samuel weeps all night. He cries out to the Lord all night over this news. And then this exhausted Samuel, this emotionally spent Samuel, goes to see Saul after his victory over the Amalekites. And Saul is just happy. He is just pleased as he can be. You see him, he he approaches Samuel and he says, look, would you see, I have completed the commandments that God has given me and I have defeated the Amalekite. Look, Samuel, look, I did a good job, look. And then Samuel says, what is this sound of bleating sheep that I hear? And you can almost feel Saul start backpedaling. It's like, well, well I, saved the best, I saved the best livestock. I wanted to offer these as an offering up to God. Right? Like, I, I, I have good intentions. These are, these are set aside for the offering. These are for God. Look, Samuel, I saved the best ones. They're for God. But God didn't ask for the best offerings. He asked for obedience. Look at verse 22. Chapter 15. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. To listen. Remember the original command, now listen to the word of the Lord. To listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Because you rejected 
the word of the Lord. He has also rejected you from being king. The wrong thing done with the right intention is still the wrong thing. And then in chapter 16, God in his grace and his love for his people chooses a king for them. Saul was the people's choice and God gave the people their choice. But God will not look blindly past the repeated sin and disobedience of Saul. And so Samuel is found at the beginning of the chapter grieving. He's still so upset over this whole thing with Saul. Because remember, I mean, just it seems to us, I mean, it's literally a few sentences before. We don't know how much time exactly has passed, but it seems at least close that Samuel was anointing Saul as king. And then a few moments or days later, this king is rejected by God. And Samuel's just distraught. He's grieving over Saul's rejection. And then God calls to Samuel in chapter 16, verse 1, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Now, I may be reading into the text here a little bit, and I'll admit that. But it seems to me like this is a little bit of a heart check from God to Samuel. Do you see it? I mean, it, it could almost read, Samuel, are you more grieved over the fact that Saul isn't king or that Saul broke my laws and commands? Which makes you more upset? Are you upset that your guy isn't the leader anymore? Are you upset that Saul isn't going to be who you thought he was going to be? Or are you broken over the fact that he sinned against me? Priorities, Samuel. God continues, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Notice that sentence is all past tense. God has already chosen the next king. The phrase I have provided is translated more literally as I have seen Again, God's perspective, seeing as God sees, is a key theme throughout this text, throughout the life of David. And God has seen, provided, chosen a king for Israel, not based on Israel's criteria for what makes a good king, but based on God's own criteria. And so as we continue in the narrative, Samuel will go to Bethlehem and anoint God's newly chosen king over Israel. But Samuel's concerned, and rightly so, because Saul is still the people's king. Even though God has rejected him, Saul still sits on the throne. And if Samuel is going to go anoint a new king, things could get ugly. They could get dangerous for Samuel. And in order to get to Bethlehem from Ramah, Samuel is actually going to have to pass through a town called Gilgal. This is Saul's hometown. Yeah. So the relationship at this point between Samuel and Saul, the tensions of this rejection by God and the actual rejection of God, it's likely public knowledge at this point that this is going on. 
And so Samuel's going to have to walk through the hometown of the hometown hero, knowing that as the voice of God for the people at this point, he's the one that has proclaimed this rejection. It's tense. And so Samuel's scared, just to put it bluntly. He's afraid. And so God gives him a cover story. He tells him to go and sacrifice to the Lord with Jesse and his sons. Now, again, this is a cover story to protect Samuel a little bit. So he actually has something to do. And he is going to go and have this sacrifice with Jesse and his sons. And that cover story, the fact that he is having a sacrifice and everything that comes with it is so important for how the rest of this plays out. See, Samuel arrives in Bethlehem and he invites Jesse and his sons to the sacrifice to the Lord and the elders of the town come out and they begin to question Samuel. Because again, when the high prophet of God walks into your hometown, you get a little nervous. Especially with the last couple of things that have come out of Samuel's mouth, it hasn't exactly been great news. And so if this guy shows up, everybody's a little bit tense and Samuel puts them at ease in verse five. He says, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. In other words, easy, fellas, it's okay. And then he says, consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Now, this act of consecration is very important. The act of consecration would have indicated the need for ritual purity, which would have meant including uh, abstaining from sexual activity, avoiding contact with any dead body. They had special washing of their bodies they had to do, wearing of clean clothing. This is all laid out in Exodus 19, 14 through 15, if you want to do some study later. But when Samuel calls Jesse and his sons to sacrifice, he is ensuring that they have abided by these elements of consecration. Consecration was meant to set them apart so that they could come before God in this sacrifice as holy. Now, this meeting was significant between Jesse and his sons and Samuel, not just because Samuel held a high authority among people, but if you think about it, this is a pretty major deal. For Samuel, this high prophet of God, to walk in to the town of Bethlehem and to ask this single family to come and sacrifice with him, to come before God and offer these sacrifices, this is a major deal. This is like massive moment for the life of Jesse and his family. It held a ridiculous amount of significance. And so this family is going to take part in the sacrificial meal and these offerings to Yahweh. It is a holy moment for this family. And it's likely the entire household is a part of this consecration. And then we're introduced to Jesse's sons. They're brought before Samuel in verse 6. It says, when they came, he looked on, he, Samuel, looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. When Samuel looked. Do you remember this key theme that runs through David's life? That God sees things in a way that we don't. So when Samuel looked, when Samuel saw with his earthly eyes, he sees Eliab, this firstborn who is described as regal, well-built, he's thinking, this guy is pretty similar to Saul. 
He could step in. He could do what Saul's doing. He, he fits the bill. When Samuel, a prophet, and by the way, at this time, a prophet was also called a seer. When the seer sees with his own eyes, he looks at the strongest, brightest, firstborn son, and he says, this has got to be the guy. This has got to be it. Samuel was seeing with his own eyes instead of God's. The seer is not seeing as the Lord sees. Look in verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God has a different perspective than we do. There are things that you and I may believe are the best, but if we would view them from God's perspective, we would know we are deceiving ourselves. I mean, especially in our Western culture as Americans, we are constantly trained to seek out the newest and best things, aren't we? Every two years, we're conditioned that our phones are no longer good doesn't matter if the new one does exactly the same thing as the old one, the new one's still better. Well, mine's maybe a little slower. It doesn't matter. I need the new one. Need it. Does all the same stuff. Doesn't matter. Need the new one. I need the newest, the best. We push after these things. In all of our culture, we constantly strive for the biggest, the best, the strongest, the brightest, the most successful. And in our eyes, we would say this this is good. And if we're not careful, we can tie that perspective to the Lord's heart and we assume that if we are successful, smart, strong, whatever, then we must be in God's will. But we see here that these things don't always connect, do they? We need to reshape our priorities and shift our perspective and ask God to help us to see as he sees. This is what Samuel had to do. And after Eliab and Jesse's other sons, they all pass before Samuel, seven of them in total. None of them are chosen by God. Sons that from our perspective, it would seem like would all fit the bill. Like surely there's something in some of them, like there's gotta be some kingly attributes here, right? Like you can almost just see this thing play out comedically. Like there's this whole big, consecrate your whole family. Samuel, I'm sending you to these, this family in Bethlehem. I'm choosing my king. And you just get son after son, and you have God telling Samuel, no, no, no. Like, you can almost feel this tension building. of like, what is going on? Have I, God, have I misheard you? Samuel's confused. And in verse 11, he asks a very logical question. Are all of your sons here? Like, Jesse, like, we've been through this. Is everybody here? Is everyone's accounted for? And you see Jesse, he says, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. Earlier, when Jesse and his sons went through the entire ritual process to consecrate themselves for sacrifice, they all would have been included in that means that this youngest son, David, would have gone through the whole process. 
And yet when it comes time for the actual moment, this huge defining moment for this family, when the prophet of God comes in and invites a single family out of all of Bethlehem to come and sacrifice for them, David, the youngest son, is passed over. His own father doesn't call him to the table. We find David keeping the sheep. There's a little bit of irony here. Because at the time, one of the, one of the words used to describe kingly responsibilities, not just in Israel, uh, but throughout the land, would be to call kings shepherds. It was part of their responsibilities that they were to shepherd their people. It was common language around that. And so the son that is not being presently in the lineup to be chosen is shepherding. But in the moment, no one considers David. No one considers him to be sufficient or significant enough to come to the table. But church, isn't this the truth, that God calls to the table who God calls to the table? Can you imagine having gone through all the process and all the prep for the celebration and then you don't get called? I mean, this is, this is similar to us. Like if we were preparing a Thanksgiving meal, that's like right around the corner. And we spent all week long, like you slaved over the meal, like you made sure everybody's favorite dishes were going to be on the table. You did everything you could, invited all the family over. It's this huge celebration. And then right before everyone sits down to eat, father-in-law looks at you and says, hey, can you run to the store? There's still one more thing we need. You say, sure, head off to Walmart to fight the crowds. And you realize when you get home that your entire family has eaten the meal without you. How would you feel? Furious, right? Some of you, you know what goes into all of that prep. You'd be furious, you'd be mad, you'd be upset, you would feel rejected, unappreciated, alone, isolated, hurt, because you were passed over. David isn't even called to the table, but he is called beloved by God. Now some of you, you need to hear this truth because you believe that you have been passed over. You believe that you have not been invited to the table, but hear me, you are always welcome at the table of Jesus. He has saved a seat for you and he is calling you home. And you may have been called damaged goods by somebody that should have told you that God is good. You may have been called a screw up by someone that should have pointed you to the one who was lifted up and died on the cross for your sin. But hear me, when God looks at you, because of the shed blood of Jesus, he does not see damaged goods. He doesn't see too far gone. He sees a son or a daughter that he is calling home. It doesn't matter if someone else has called you broken because Christ was broken so that you wouldn't have to be. He was broken so that when God looks at you, he doesn't call you broken, he calls you beloved. And so this passed over, dismissed David, comes to the table, comes before Samuel, and he's described in verse 12 as ruddy. 
This could be translated reddish. It could mean that his hair was red or that that was more of his skin tone. It also says that he has beautiful eyes. Interesting side note. That he's handsome. But we've seen these categories before, haven't we? We've seen this type of physical attractiveness. We've seen it in Saul. We've seen it in his older brother Eliab. And so we see that it is not physical appearance that God is looking at as he chooses David. These are things that are made to describe David. They are identifiers, but they are not, they are not barriers or identifiers to see what God sees when he's choosing a king. God tells us, in, again, tells Samuel in verse 12, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. In verse 13, then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This anointing designates for David a very specific role. And it's unclear from the text if Samuel lets the family know what this significance means, that this is about kingship. It seems, at least in the subsequent passages, that they don't know, that even David doesn't know. Because either, either that or the brothers just treat David like garbage because they're just mad that he got the oil and they didn't, right? Like we see this kind of tension between him and his brothers where they're just very dismissive to him, still being passed over. But it could be that Samuel doesn't tell David everything that this means because he is trying to protect him. Remember, Saul is still the anointed king of Israel. And David doesn't become king right away. For whatever reason. We don't, for whatever reason, God chooses to do it this way. And this is significant for us and for David. Because this is true. There will be times in your life when truth and time don't run hand in hand. There will be moments when the call that God has placed on your life or the desires that he's put in your heart are crystal clear and biblically guided, but the timing is not right. He may want to walk you through a season of refinement and growth so that you can be who he needs you to be when he needs you to be it. David, this young shepherd boy, had a lot to learn about what it was going to take to be the king over a nation. He needed time. He needed refinement. And God was going to grow David by the guiding of his spirit so that he could be who he needed to be. And that moment comes for David in chapter 16, verses 14 through 23. We see that God's spirit leaves Saul. It says that his spirit departed from Saul. God's removed his anointing from him and God places a tormenting spirit on him. Saul is sitting in the seat of authority, leading God's people without the spirit of God. And that weight is heavy. He's overwhelmed, he's anxious, and it appears from the text that God allows some type of a demonic spirit to attack Saul and to send him into these fits of rage and anxiety and fear. And it seems as though whenever these attacks come, the only thing that calms him down is music. Now, as someone who has dealt with anxiety and continues to battle that, there's times when a quiet room and a good song do a lot of good for the soul. So I get this. But in the midst of one of these fits of rage, one of Saul's men comes to him and he says, hey, can I recommend to you David? Isn't it interesting? The young man who just a few chapters earlier 
who was once thought to be too insignificant to be called to a table is now mentioned at tables in the king's court. Look and see how he's described. Look at verse 18. Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Does this sound like the same ruddy, scrappy, young shepherd boy that we saw earlier? No. It's clear some time has passed, and it's clear that God has been growing David. He's been working in David. He's been refining him to be all that he needs him to be. And then look in verse 19. Saul sends for David, and look how Saul calls for him. Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. Truth and time don't always run hand in hand. Now, it's clear from the way that David is described that he has been growing and that God has been growing him. But it's also clear that he is not neglecting where God has placed him. My friends, you may feel as though God is calling you to something very clearly in the future. You may feel that. But let me encourage you. As you dream of where God may take you, don't neglect where God has placed you. Part of preparing for what God may have ahead of you is being faithful to the work that he has called you to right now. And you may say to me, look, Micah, you don't know where I am right now. I hate where I am right now and I can't wait to get out. In fact, I should have hopped ship a long time ago. You don't even understand. If you knew the type of coworkers that I work with, if you knew the boss that I have, you wouldn't be saying that. Do you think David had days like that? David, who was anointed by the high prophet of God for a significant future moment, is still with the sheep. Do you think David had days where he was still passed over by his family? Days in which he's treated like garbage by his brothers due to their jealousy. Days when David is mucking stalls, cleaning up sheep poop. Do you think as he's shoveling, there's not a moment that runs through his mind, like what was this whole anointing thing about? I'm meant for more than this. But when David is called into what God has for him, we find him with the sheep. Even though David may have believed his situation was broken, David knew the truth that he was beloved by God. David had to learn to see how God sees. He had to learn that God's timing is often different than our timing. And while you may believe that your circumstances are broken, remember that you are beloved by God as well. Because when we see as God sees, we see that we are broken, dead in our sin, poor, wretched, and naked, and lost without hope. But God, who is rich in mercy and loves us very much, made a way through the broken body and shed blood of Jesus for us not to be seen as broken, but for us to be seen as beloved. And every day the mercies of God are new. 
every day he is unfailing even though we are every day when we act in our brokenness his grace carries us through so the band is going to lead us in a song that speaks to the faithfulness of our god in the midst of our unfaithfulness and as we stand and sing this is what i'd like you to do i'd like you to sing but pray that god would give you eyes to see as he sees pray that god would lead you and guide you in a way that only he can thank you for listening to this episode of the north canton chapel podcast if this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at ncchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.